and welcome to the first episode of the Bioanalysis Zone podcast on cell and gene therapies, sponsored by QPS Holdings. I'm your host, Ellen Williams, and today I'm joined by Kimberly Breitart-Hafen, Executive Director and Global Head of Regulatory Services from QPS. Welcome to the podcast, Kimberly. Thank you. So Kim, we've spoken to you a little bit before about cell and gene therapies, but for those just joining the conversation, would you like to tell us a little bit more about your work in the field? All right. Well, thank you for this opportunity. A little bit about my background, uh, my trainings in neuroscience. I worked in early gene therapy, SIRNA, in Tom Cech's laboratory, um, worked in adult stem cells, uh, embryonic stem cells, and this was all about 20 years ago. So what we struggled with through the years is actually getting these products, being able to manufacture GMP and showing that they're safe and effective very exciting that we're there now. My time spent in between, I worked in industry in biologics, and then I worked as a field investigator for the FDA. During this time, biosimilars came into place, which was very exciting being able to get those biological products to patients in an affordable manner. As I went into consulting, then we had our first gene therapy products for approval followed by CAR-T. I worked on both of those first approved products. And then I specialize in quality and regulatory areas for gene and cell therapies, expedited programs as well, trying to get those products to the patients faster. It feels like cell and gene therapies have really gone on a very exciting journey over the last 10 or 20 years. It's been so much progress. Um, But if we start from the very, very basics, What are we talking about when we talk about cell and gene therapies? What does that encompass? So first we need to understand what the genetic uh, defect is in a disease state. Once we can pinpoint that, then we work towards correction. So there's different types uh, with cell and gene therapy, but the foundation is the plasmid. The plasmid that is going to correct this genetic defect If we look at gene therapy, then we're able to take a plasmid and have a routed delivery. So maybe viral, maybe a lipid into a cell to correct that genetic defect. Then there's cell therapy. So we're going to take the cells out of the body and we're going to use that plasmid. And also, once again, we need that vector to be able to deliver it to the cells, but treat the cells outside of the body and then transfer them back into the body of the same person or the newer technologies are either going towards more of the off the shelf. So we're able to um, remove any kind of aminogenicity of the cell and give it to a different person. So that that is the future. Um, And that's a very exciting time for us. So we're starting to see these kind of, was it off the shelf that you that you used there, that phrase? So, you know, we're, we're starting to see these actually be very accessible to people. What is involved in, in the regulatory approval in the lead up to being able to access those cell and gene therapies off the shelf? And why is that process so important? So the regulatory approval pathways, they really are unique towards the product. We have some standard platforms such as CAR-T that we've seen coming through um, standard, also standard manufacturing platforms, but a lot of the other cell therapies and gene therapies are very unique. So what we encourage is early regulatory interaction. So we start with 
early engagement meetings with the agency, interact, pre-IND. So we are aligned. We are aligned on what are the release specifications? How are we going to manufacture this product? Have we done all of the preclinical work? Have we thought of everything that needs to be considered to go into um, first in human and all the different phases of the clinical trial. So you really want to start early and get that alignment so that when you go to apply your um, regulatory applications, that you'll be successful. The regulatory agencies want to work with you. It's a collaboration. Um, and the goal is safe and effective to patients. And uh, in this space, it's a lot of rare diseases with no treatment options. So it's an opportunity for expedited programs throughout the regulatory pathway, starting with fast track, breakthrough, once you get um, the early clinical efficacy data, um, contingent approval, expedited review, many, many opportunities. And so really don't wanna work alone. You want to engage them as early as possible. And also we're seeing a lot of global harmonization especially with the EU, the US, and Japan, as far as what should these standards be, how do we show that they're safe and effective, and how can we work together um, to be able to review these applications and also facilitate them to the patients. So I guess this might differ quite drastically between uh, the different types of cell and gene therapies going through approvals, but generally how long do the approvals take? For a typical um, small molecule or biologic, you're probably looking at seven to 11 years. With these expedited programs, we can reduce them down to five to seven years. So really it's it's ethically the right thing to do um, to get it to the patient faster. So we want to be sure to work with the regulatory agencies and use these expedited pathways. Um, also with rare diseases, there's uh, incentive programs to produce these products for patients. Uh, a lot of these products are small batch. So as far as profitability, it's not manufacturing large scales. It's very, very expensive products, but you'll never be manufacturing large scale um, products. So it's uh, really nice that we have these rare disease incentive programs that encourage companies to bring these products to market. So during that length of time, then, what are some of the common barriers that you're maybe seeing to getting those cell and gene therapies approved? The biggest barriers to getting these products to market, number one is manufacturing. Manufacturing these products, if you're in expedited programs, it's going to move faster then your common scaling up of manufacturing. So putting that extra burden on the GMPs for the product, um, it, it becomes difficult. So we really wanna work to have that clinical data and the manufacturing data um, available for the um, approval of a marketing authorization. Another issue is with immunogenicity. We don't really know uh, what will happen over time with the products. So this needs to be monitored with long-term monitoring. Developing the analytical methods can be a challenge. You want to show um, the mechanism of action through a bioassay. Um, you want to show, in lots of cases, protein expression. 
You want to be able to quantitate the gene biomarkers. Biomarkers are huge for these types of products because depending upon when you initiate the treatment, you can see early changes in biomarkers before you can see the changes in the efficacy for the disease. And if the disease has already progressed to a certain state, you can't reverse it. You can only treat it going forward. So biomarkers are going to show that you're causing the gene to work correctly earlier than you're going to see those physical corrections of the disease or actually the stopping of the progression of the disease. So what are you seeing to be the most common cell and gene therapies coming through regulatory approvals right now? And do you envision those maybe being slightly different in years to come? In the beginning, we started with gene therapy that had the route of administration through the eye. The eye being exposed organ, um, we're able to get that efficacy and show safety with these products in the human being. Then we moved on to cellular therapies, CAR-T, where we're taking the cells out, treating the cells and putting the cells back. Um, and this was really building on the bone marrow transplant history that was started in the 50s. So, so it, we're progressing, but now what's the next step? We need to move beyond CAR-T and the early gene therapies. We have the siRNAs that are coming out now that can have really target specific. One thing with that, it's, it's commonly a, a chronic administration. So that even changes what we're seeing traditionally with the gene and cell therapy. So it's a transient um, treatment with gene and cell therapies. It's a one-time treatment, one-time treatment, potential cure. So that's, that's really exciting. And then where is that one going? We're already seeing um, hematopoietic stem cells in, in the industry commercialized. And the next one is the mesenchymal stem cells. So we're going to go a little bit earlier up in that pathway, pathway being able to differentiate into even more types of cells, the off the shelf. So having universal donors where we can expand those cells keep them frozen, uh, remove anything that would cause any kind of immunological reaction, and then customize, do customized treatments, individualized treatments for patients, depending upon what is their defect. So that's very exciting um, times for the industry. We have a lot of um, natural history studies. So you go in and fully understand what a certain rare disease, what are the biomarkers? You're going to take samples from the disease patients and, and understand the disease. And then you're going to understand what you can use when you find the product that will treat it. When you find that gene and cell therapy that will treat the defect, now you know what the biomarkers are and what you can measure. So the natural history studies are the beginning, and then we move on to the treatment. There is seeing a lot more of decentralized studies with rare diseases. So we can, if there's a lot of burden on the patient, rare diseases are often in children. So we have children, 
We have parents involved. We have remote patients. So decentralized studies are what's going to get us there. Being able to offer more digital platforms for the collection of data, being able to have at-home uh, healthcare come in and um, be able to pull the bio samples and really um, making it easier for the patient. And then it also facilitates getting that data to be able to commercialize the product. And as you mentioned there, a lot of the patients that are suffering with these rare diseases are children. Does that make recruitment for things like clinical trials much more difficult? I imagine it does. And fortunately, we have experts in the field that study rare diseases. You see it often, it's um, the, the, someone in their family will have had this rare disease and there was nothing they could do for them. So it's really the, the, the passion that they have for their fields of expertise is incredible. And in even my opportunity to work in this field, it's just such a rewarding opportunity. What commonly see is that a baby appears healthy at birth and starts missing milestones. And then they need to go in and investigate and, and, and go down a pathway of ruling things out. So once we can get the diagnosis and we have the experts have it on their radar, and then we could do those natural history studies to, to get those biosamples and understand the pathway of the disease. Then we work on the product, what's going to correct that. And then we'll be able to actually get to that trial. The, the decentralized approach is the best way to tackle these uh, patients that are in remote um, locations, but it's that getting in as early as possible is really important to be able to stop the progression of the disease. Like you were saying there with this decentralized system and having to interact with very small children often, how then is maybe the use of microsampling devices and things like that, do they play quite an important role, I imagine, in being able to collect the biological samples and actually not impact the patient as much as, say, collection methods that peak much more than what is needed for those. Yes, the more and more advanced that we get in our bioanalytical methods, the less amount of samples that will need to be taken, the more we can look at what are the bioanalytical um, markers circulating in the blood, the more we can move away from biopsies and, and things that need to be performed in the hospital and are, are, are hard on the patients. So the more we can advance at, at looking at what are the cues in the blood, what are the cues in any kind of um, urine or saliva, more non-invasive, more imaging, um, the easier it is on the patient and more we can move away from actually having them come into uh, facilities, being able to go to maybe more centralized imaging facilities, and then for the sampling, have it performed at their home. Um, the digital platforms are great, and I think this was facilitated a lot during COVID when, when people, even though we were doing decentralized studies, still maybe wouldn't want someone coming into your home unnecessarily. For behavior analysis, we're seeing uh, iPads being used, physical therapists communicating that way. We really were able to advance to more of um, digital platforms, which 
which is great for data integrity. I really like asking this question because I think you get such a unique answer from from everybody. But is there a particular therapy or a particular advancement that's happened in maybe recent years that you are particularly excited about or maybe something that is just around the corner, you think, for cell and gene therapies? The CRISPR-Cas9 technology that was just approved for sickle cell disease was amazing. Um, That's a Nobel Prize award-winning technology from women scientists in the field. Huge advancement for women, um, huge advancement for the technology. But this technology, now there's already the next generation. So the next generation is coming down the pathway and that will take time for approval, but opening the door to um, this selective editing tool and even the next generations that are to come, um, seeing that being approved commercially, it's a huge opening of the door. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Kimberly. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you as always. Do you have any final comments to leave us with? really excited to see more global harmonization through the regulatory agencies, the advancements that we're seeing in bioanalytical testing. It's very exciting. And the future is opening as far as offering cures to patients that that had no treatment options. So it's just such an exciting field. I'm honored to be part of it. And um, we're just going to keep on moving down that pathway and get those treatments to the patients faster. Thank you very much. Thanks.